Hello and welcome back to Parallel Passion. Today I'm joined by Jonan Scheffler, who is a developer advocate at Heroku and an all-round great guy. He recently caught my attention by live-streaming coding sessions from RailsConf, so of course we talked about that. But we also discussed other topics like home improvement, robots, smart speakers, voodoo donuts and many more. If you like this show, please share it with your friends. You can also support us via Patreon. Every like, every retweet and every dollar helps us getting off the ground, so thanks. While recording, we encountered some software issues, so parts of the show had to be cut out. Hopefully, you'll still enjoy the rest of it. And now, here's Jonan. Hi, Jonan, and welcome to Parallel Passion. Hi, Mia. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. And uh, why don't you just like introduce yourself with uh, what it is that you, that you do? What it is that I do. So I'm a developer advocate. I work at Heroku. Uh, we make a cloud platform. It's a real easy way to get your apps online. You should use it. And that is my job. That, that was just a small sample that I gave you just there <laughs> of how I advocate for developers uh, to use our product. But basically, my job is to go out there and help developers use Heroku uh, and, and to be better developers generally and also to take their feedback back inside. So I'm advocating for the developers inside and outside the company. And does that mean primarily going like, to, to the conferences or do you do something like outside conferences as well? So we do a lot of things outside of conferences. I think about half of my year, probably last year, I went to 22 events oh, wow. and they average about a week of travel, sometimes a little bit more. So I think uh, probably about half my year I'm on the road. You go where the developers are. And then the rest of the time I am writing blog posts or making podcasts or um, similar content. I've, I've gotten into live streaming lately. Yeah, well, because um, that's actually how I met you. Not the live streaming, but the, the podcast. Like for the Rails Israel, I think that was like in November of last year. Yeah. You did this um, interviews with some of the speakers there. Like, was this your idea or did it come from the organizers? So I got contacted by a friend of mine that I worked with uh, who was friends with one of the organizers. And they said that we wanted to do some, they had wanted to do some podcast interviews of the speakers coming in. Uh, and he was under the impression that I was an expert podcaster, and I'm not sure where he got that impression, <laughs> but I uh, decided to help out. And so I did some some interviews with the people who were going to be giving their talks, which was fantastic, actually. I really enjoyed it. Oh, I, I did as well, but I was one of the guests, so maybe I'm biased there. <laughs> yeah, I think ours was probably the best. Oh, wow, well, that's just flattering. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, did you do any podcasting before that? Because like, your nickname on, on Twitter and I think everywhere else is like the Jonan Show. Was there, uh, was there a point in time where there was a Jonan Show? There has never been a Jonan Show, uh, nor had I done any podcasting before I got contacted by my friend to help out <laughs> with podcasting. So I really don't know why he thought that I was an expert, but everyone treated me like an expert and I was happy to play along. I had an excuse to buy some nice audio equipment. Um, but do you plan to do more of, of those interviews? I think the developer or the, the speaker interviews I found really interesting. I would love to do that for another event. I've just not had the opportunity yet. My life is quite busy. I'm overwhelmed with the number, number of projects I have already. So I don't reach out to those things. But if you're listening and you organize an event and you want to interview your speakers, hit me up. I bet we could arrange that. Yeah, and um, I can put a link in the show notes just to, to have a sort of sample of 
um, what it is that you do and, and those kind of interviews. Because I listen to them all, like not obviously uh, I listen to mine, but I listen to, to other ones as well. And they were all like very interesting because you touched like all the other topics. You didn't just discuss like, oh, what are you going to talk on, on, the, on the conference? Yeah, exactly. I think it's more interesting that way, which is why I like your podcast so much is that I think sometimes the the most interesting stories that people have to tell are not necessarily related to their work, even though, you know, we're all quite passionate about our work. That's also something that we can make an interesting narrative around. It's a lot more fun to me to add depth to uh, the characters in the podcast, I guess. Yeah, so I don't know if you remember, but you promised that you're gonna you're gonna visit Slovenia and that we're gonna go to the butt, which is the seaside together. But yes, uh, that uh, that never happened. I haven't been there yet. I went out to Yuruko and I was gonna go traveling afterwards, but it ended up not happening. We were in Budapest, and it actually turns out to be a really interesting city with a lot to do. So I didn't travel outside. I just got to see all of Budapest. That uh, I mean, I, I guess I didn't see all that I wanted to see. I could spend weeks there. It's a beautiful city. Yeah, it's a very nice city. Yeah, I, I agree. I th I think yeah, I was there as well, right? Of course, I was. We we met there. Yeah, yeah. But I would still love to go to Slovenia. I'm I'm holding you to that. The next time I'm out in Europe. Well, yeah, sure. I I mean, you're you're welcome here, as you know, and we can go to to the butt of the chicken, as as you said. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, and um, you mentioned uh, streaming before. I, I noticed you did that on the RailsConf recently. You did a, a lot of Twitch streams uh, where you um, sort of programmed the Conway's uh, game of life. Uh, where did the where did that idea come from? Yeah, so we had been looking at ways to get out into other mediums. We've been I, we have a pretty good idea of how to write blog posts and how to attend conferences, but we wanted to reach people in other ways. And when you say we, you mean Heroku or Oh, right. Yeah, so the Heroku developer advocacy team. Right. We were just sitting around kind of brainstorming new places we could talk to people and uh we had a, a an advocate with us who worked for um uh, Salesforce for a while and then ended up going over to Twitch to be on the advocacy team there. And I'd heard from them that they were working on doing code specific Twitch streams because Twitch, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the platform, but when they began, it was just game streaming, right? Yeah. It's just people playing video games. And then yeah, yeah. they've started branching out. They've got these in real life streamers, the IRL streamers, and then they've got people doing code on there to great success. I love some of the, the code stuff out there. So we thought we'd give it a shot. And what I came up with was just to do pair programming with people, impromptu uh, pair programming exercises with Conway's Game of Life, which is a trick I picked up from code retreats. Have you ever been to a code retreat? Yeah, that was actually one of my questions. Like, was this the, the inspiration, like the code retreat or was uh, something else? But yeah, apparently it was code retreat. Yeah, I loved the code retreat I went to. I went to one in... Um, in Virginia, Floyd, Virginia, with Corey, and um, it was fantastic. Corey Haynes was running them for a while. They were great. With Corey himself, that must be something else. I was very lucky, yeah. That was about five years ago when I was first getting into software, and it was a really interesting experience. I remember pair programming with people on Conway's Game of Life. Like For those who are unfamiliar, it's just a very simple game. It's got four rules. It's a zero-player game, and it kind of plays itself according to these rules where cells either live or die, depending on how many cells they have next to them. And so you you set up kind of like a pixel grid, and then the pixels evolve and change and eventually reach some final state or not. Uh, it's a very interesting project, but the rules lend themselves to uh, rules-based programming, which I had never heard of at the time. And I remember sitting there as a student. I've been programming uh, not yet professionally 
really, really at all, and maybe in total for two years in, in Ruby. And I, of course, feel entitled to have opinions about things. <laughs> and I sat down and paired with someone who was setting up a rules-based approach. And I was like, well, this is just weird and 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 wrong, <laughs> you know, which is usually a pretty good indicator that you're actually looking uphill, right? Yeah. Now, I, I remember um, it was... I think like three years ago when I first heard of Code Retreat and w like a friend of mine did one uh, locally and I think there was like 15 of us or something like that and it was the first time I like even heard of the Conway's Game of Life and the whole thing at the like the first time because it's you're very limited with time like that's the whole thing I think you have like 15 or 20 minutes for the whole thing yeah um and uh it was very for me it was just like demanding figuring it out like what it is that we're supposed to do but then um the good thing about code retreats is that it doesn't really matter whether you finish it or not it's just like getting there and and experiencing something new and then you have all these like weird uh obstacles and and weird stuff like oh you like you have to do it in the um, um, like defensive way. So one person is writing tests, the other one is writing code and stuff like that. Yeah, this is one of my favorite ways to do it where the person writing the test, you'll have some test that says like this method returns seven if there are seven cells in the um, array or whatever, right? Yeah. And then someone, it's like, I, some people call it troll pairing uh, <laughs> or evil coder, this pattern, where then the implementer goes and writes a method that just returns the integer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, well, that's not what I wanted, obviously, but you have to prove that that's not what you wanted by writing more tests around it. And then you throw it all away. Every, you know, 15, 20 minutes, you finish a session with somebody and you have to get reset hard and throw away all the code. So it, I think it helps with that permanence issue we're naturally inclined to optimize for the future and prepare for additional features all of the the yagni stuff that developers do it doesn't apply here it gets gets you out of your head a little bit to throw the code away yeah and the idea behind it is that like the same way as artists uh, like i i don't know painters sketch and throw it away the same the same thing could be applied to us developers as well and that we should do the the same sort of exercises where we just sort of hone our skills and and try stuff out and then just throw it away and start anew with that knowledge somewhere in the back of our minds i guess yeah it's really interesting to me too to to see how different people will approach that problem so very differently i think when i was at railsconf i did about 10 hours of streaming and maybe had 12 people on the stream, but every single one of them had an entirely different approach, different approach to how that game should be written. And some of them were really quite comical. Evan Phoenix in particular had a very interesting solution that you should look up. It was fun. Yeah, I will, I will, uh, I will put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, I didn't have time to watch any of them live because obviously um, the time zone difference. Right. Um, but I just I just saw it when I was out. I saw it on, on Twitter that you were like uh, retweeting it and, and all that. And it was... Um, and especially the, the photos with when you t like take photos with everyone, the selfies and everything, it was like uh, extreme FOMO for me. Oh yeah, we would have loved to have you there. Ah uh, yeah, I know. I would. I would love to be there. But you know, uh, US is far away and uh, expensive for a, a, it is a poor Eastern guy like me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time to just come over and work here. I hear immigration to the United States is real easy lately. Oh yeah, yeah, sure it is. Well, yeah, no um, problem. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, what was the the actual? 
purpose behind that? So why did you start uh, live streaming? And because you mentioned that you plan to do more of this, and I imagine it's not only going to be Conway's game of life, or is it? Well, it's going to be the one that I do at the conference. We need to have it be extemporaneous because I'm bringing in people who I would have to prepare ahead of time for some kind of formal exercise or say if I wanted to build anything specific, I'd kind of need to prep people and we need to have a plan. And that defeats the purpose uh, of that particular stream. Right. So in my mind, what the, the Conway's Game of Life stream is about is about getting developers, hopefully fairly experienced developers or sometimes not. Uh, in front of other uh, developers. Actually, I'm taking that back. That's that's not at all relevant. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting to watch people from every every skill level. With experienced developers, I think it's interesting because you get them on there and they make mistakes and they forget methods and they have to go to the documentation for things. And those are all really valuable things to see people who are senior software developers do when you're just beginning. When I first started out, and I was pairing with people who were much better than me. It was amazing to me that they were mortal, which sounds silly, but just to watch people make those mistakes is very humanizing. And I think we need more of that in software because we have this unhealthy tendency, I think, to raise up heroes in our communities. And I'm not saying that the people that we appreciate that way aren't deserving. They're they're generally great people and they work very hard for the communities that they're a part of. I just think that having a hero in general within a community like that can be kind of unhealthy for the way the community grows. And the other part of it is to talk about design principles. It's a great vehicle for how, how are we setting this up? Why do we have cells and why do we have a world and why are we ticking instead of this? Or, you know, what, what, why did you choose that method name? Those are the questions that I get to ask when I'm pairing with people. And I think that can be very illuminating sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I agree. I mean, it's, um, for me, it was very interesting, like I said. Um, just the whole thing, like, you have to work in an endless canvas in any direction. So immediately, like, erase out of the question. And they're like, so how how am I going to do this? And you can spend, like, I don't know, five minutes just debating what's the underlying storage going to be. Yeah, it was awesome, actually. But I always leave it open to people's interpretation. I don't try to guide their implementation if I can help it. And we had one that was an infinite map that was a very interesting solution. But so in answer to your original question, we have this stream, which is going to be about just that, just kind of a code retreat live. And then we also have planned streams that are a little more focused on the product, kind of Heroku best practices, where I build an app with a Heroku internal employee, a coworker of mine. Uh, we'll build an application together and just kind of show people how we, as people who are familiar with Heroku and familiar with Ruby and Rails, would set that thing up on Heroku. So hopefully people will pick up some things about the product in that other stream. Right. So what's your st setup for recording these streams? Right. So right now, I actually just have these small webcams. It's called a Razer Kio, I think, K-I-Y-O. And it's actually got a ring light around it. And mm -hmm. so traveling as much as I do, I am always trying to buy the smallest possible thing. <laughs> yeah. And this is a webcam that combines lighting into one. And so I picked up three of these things and I can kind of slap them on the sides of a 40-inch TV in the booth. 
And then I've got plenty of light. People's faces are well lit and I've got lots of angles so I can show a little bit of the background at the conference. And then I have a couple of uh, microphones that are hooked up to a Zoom. Are you familiar with the Zoom recorder series? Yeah, yeah, I, I am. It's a supposedly really nice thing to like record on, on field. Yeah, they're fantastic. And they have a bunch of mic attachments you can use. So I've got a couple of little uh, lavalier mics that people can clip on. So that's the setup right now. I have a next iteration that I'm very excited about. Do you want, can I talk about it now? Yeah, please, please do. I'm very okay, interested so about it. I actually, I, um, I was online and, uh, at this conference, we had an internet drop event spaces charge a huge amount of money for any kind of reasonable bandwidth. And it never works. Like it never works. It never works. Like, I've never been to a conference where Wi-Fi would work reliably all the time. It's never happened. Exactly. Right. And so you're paying people. Sometimes they'll give you your own Wi-Fi network or they'll give you like in this case, we had a hardwire drop. We had an Ethernet drop in the booth and it actually worked great. That was in Pittsburgh. Props to the Pittsburgh Convention Center. You did a good job. We had good internet. But uploading that HD video that I want to have has got to have reliable internet. And I just don't trust the event spaces to have reliable internet. And it's also extraordinarily expensive, like thousands of dollars. Wow. We looked at a new event we were going to do, and I think it was going to be $2,500 to have a three meg symmetrical connection Jesus. on the ethernet drop. Wow. Yeah. You can get like an LTE modem or something like that for that money. Exactly what you can do. You can get a cellular bonding device that combines the signals from four LTE modems into one and then sends the stream. So there's a product called a live view. This, all of this build, it came from um, my friend who was at Salesforce, uh, who I told you about. Mm -hmm. So you use a live view, which is like a local encoding device that you can plug multiple wireless modems in, and it includes a cellular bonding modem. So you've combined the stream from these four uh, wireless modems. So now I'm walking around with a backpack full of gear and a couple of big 50,000 milliamp batteries in it <laughs> with a, a, a streaming box and these four modems. And I can just push a button and the camera strapped to the shoulder of my backpack starts recording. That sounds, uh, sounds really, really amazing. And um, what's the next conference where you're going to be doing live streams? So I'm going to PyCon. I'm going to be in Cleveland for PyCon this week. I think I fly out on Wednesday. And we've got a little workshop there for Heroku we're putting on to uh, teach people about Heroku. And then the rest of the week, I'm going to be hanging out in the booth and hopefully live streaming with people. I haven't really signed anyone up. You know, they may be a little surprised that I don't know Python very well, if at all. <laughs> um, I've, I've written like a Django app and a couple of things over the years, but it's going to be a big learning experience for me, for sure. I think you, well, you had to dive into Python when you did your um, home improvement thing, is, or is that all JavaScript? Oh, right. All of my little, uh, my Raspberry Pi projects and things. Yeah. Yeah, I did actually uh, use a little bit of Python on some of those. I'm building a project right now that's a, uh, a cloud-connected waffle maker. It's an artificially <laughs> intelligent cloud-connected waffle maker that is called WaffleBot temporarily. How can waffle maker be intelligent? It's So it learns, it makes waffles, and it has a bunch of sensors attached to it, and all of the sensors... Okay, so it's kind of a big project. It's a lot of words to say about it, but I'll just say that, that it, it uses all of these sensors to collect data about the waffles. And then the user, after receiving their waffle, they rate their waffle experience. And between one and five stars, we then try to optimize for the perfect waffle over time. Wow. <laughs> As determined by my very rudimentary machine learning understanding. In which language are you doing that? 
So that's the cool thing about that project is because each of the sensors is reporting separately. It uses Kafka mm-hmm. for all of the various bits to communicate instead of HTTP. I put it into a Kafka event stream, uh, the temperature of the waffle maker, for example, as one indicator. I And so then it's streaming all of these temperature measurements that it's taking as fast as it can. And I can write the code to do that in whatever language is most convenient. So right. I'm actually going to write it in Python and go chief among them. My first stop is going to be Waffle.js in San Francisco. It, there's a thing called Waffle.js? Yes, there is a meetup called Waffle.js and <laughs> I think that that is the place that, that Wafflebot should make its premiere. Was that the inspiration for the Wafflebot or is it just a happy coincidence? No, I actually... Yeah, I just had a... My kids got me this waffle maker for Christmas, which is an interesting gift. And then, you know, brainstorming the, the future robot that became Wafflebot as I was cooking waffles. Yeah, it's really convenient to have a Waffle.js to be um, to be there so you can present your Wafflebot. Wafflebot, I have to change the name. I actually need help. If you have another name that I could call a waffle-making robot, because Wafflebot is apparently a project by the, is it Waffle.io? The people who do kind of a, they do like a Trello-based thing, but it uses GitHub issues in the background. It's like a UI, I think, they put on top. They've got a, a bot for their company that they call Wafflebot. So the name Wafflebot has been taken. If you come up with another name for a good good robot name for a waffle-making robot, let me know. So many waffles everywhere. I don't know. Just so Waffle Waffle, maybe. Waffle Waffle. <laughs> waffle Nature. <laughs> well, you have a lot of robots that you've built. I mean, what did you, what did you name those robots? So I, I typically name them out of after their subject matter. I have, I think, Sauron was probably one of my favorites. That was like a home security system. <laughs> that was it was like a really bad home security system, but it was fun. It was fun to build. So that was Sauron because it was always watching. And I had a robot called Urza that I built. Urza is a character from Magic the Gathering. And Urza was a robot that automatically sorted magic cards. Uh, theoretically. In the end, it never worked very well because it damaged the cards as it ran them through. It was built out of Legos, and you can't have that. If you've ever held a Magic the Gathering card, you know that you are obligated to protect it. Yeah, well, that's not nice. Maybe if you use like rubber wheels or something to to sort it. I actually have, I, I have a suction arm waiting to be for the next version of Urza. Like I said, I, I come up with these nonsense projects and I get so <laughs> excited about them that I just, I mean, Wafflebot, like I, I pulled all-nighters working on Wafflebot sometimes when I first got it going, especially if I had like a demo for somebody because I'm showing it off inside the company and like that. And there's a lot of, of moving pieces when you're working on a hardware project. There's so much that can go wrong. So I very often would be like down in San Francisco in my hotel with my soldering iron out because another <laughs> power supply shot craps on me and I got to re-solder, you know. Anyway, it's a, a fun project I will go back to someday. But Urza actually have a suction arm that picks up the card off of a stack of cards and then shows the card to a camera. And then I have some... Um, some image stuff I can do with the computer, uh, the open computer vision project. Mm -hmm. I can uh, clean up the image and get a real clean shot of the card. And I actually use some of that Hamming distance code again to compare it against known images. So I can download an image of every magic card that has ever been printed. I think there's something like 15,000 distinct cards right now. Yeah, I saw that uh, creative gem name like Gatherer the Magic Ink or something Yes, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend that anyone try that gem. It was, it's quite old code. Uh, I'll make a better one someday. Yeah. Um, did you hear about Lope? 
lobe.ai. No, this sounds like something I need. It's a quite recent thing. Um, it's what they do is um, make this machine learning approachable to people like me, so not uh, an expert. And they have like a lot of examples, like recognizing a face and a hand, and then recognizing an emoji from that hand, or recognizing like plants, like poison oak or stuff like that, or um, you know the, the the classical is it a, is it a hot dog or not a hot dog? Yes, uh, stuff like that, or even recognizing like is it a guitar or a ukulele or something like 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 that oh yeah absolutely actually this is really great i'm checking out their website now the actual understanding of machine learning i took part of a machine learning course once online and ultimately didn't have time to complete the course but it was such a huge workload i was it was an unexpected amount of work that i would be putting in you know four hours a day of studying on this stuff it's a deep field there's a lot to learn if you want to become competent and and roll up your own machine learning algorithms but we have things like tensorflow now and stuff like lobe AI that make it so easy, there's no reason not to make every robot artificially intelligent at this point. I'm going to end up ending the world accidentally with waffles. <laughs> That's the thing. Even TensorFlow for me is maybe like just just out of my reach. Maybe I would have to look into it a bit more. But Lope speaks to my visual brain very nicely and um, it makes more sense. I feel like it's not the kind of thing that either of us necessarily couldn't learn given the time, but that is the the problem, right? That we don't have time to learn all of the technologies that come along as developers. I need things that make my life real simple. Yeah. Which is what finally brought me over to the the cult of Mac, because I was not a fan when I first got into software. But the fact that it mostly just works a lot of the time, <laughs> which is about as much as you can expect from software, <laughs> is really nice. One more thing that I don't have to fix today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I just don't want to have to like deal with, right? Because like you have similar things you don't have time to learn everything that you want to learn i assume yeah of course because otherwise i could be learning javascript frameworks all day long javascript community is a good example because it's growing very quickly if you tried to keep up with every new framework or project that was coming along it would be impossible you know even in a slower community like ruby i guess slower is not a great way to describe that but yeah. maybe one that is more mature or we've kind of leveled out right like a lot of the gems that are going to exist for a certain Prod or a certain type of work that you're trying to do, they're already well established and they've been around for years. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's what I prefer. I, I prefer to know a couple of tools and know them well rather than know a lot of things just barely. Jack of all trades, master of none, right? That expression? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I'm doing Ruby for a while now. Actually, I, I started like a bit over five years ago. And then I got into Rails, and then I got the scholarship for RailsConf, which is how I went to your hometown, like where I um, went to Portland, and that was amazing. That was actually one of my first RailsConfs. Yeah, I think maybe my second. I was just about to ask you, like, were you there? Or I was. Yeah, I'm. Mean, in fact, over my desk, I have a a RailsConf sign that I stole. I steal signs from every conference I go to. <laughs> Three feet tall because I I was right here in my hometown, so I could carry a big one home on the train. Yeah, I remember getting there and still not knowing people in the Ruby community. Um, basically, I didn't know anyone other than DHH, I guess. And um, when they said that someone is cutting sausages like down in the um, 
in the hallway, I was like, oh, this Portland really, really is weird. Like, I did not expect some random guy to just cut sausages here at the conference. And then later, I found out that that was actually, like, tender love. Like, Aaron was doing that. I was like, oh, well, that's a shame. <laughs> oh, God. That project was hilarious, actually. He was giving out salami that he had made himself. He had, like, a little smart salami rig that he had built, and he gave a talk about it. Oh, you just thought, oh, weird Portland. There's people cutting sausage down. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, I know. But the thing is, I didn't, back then, I didn't know who he is. Three months later, I was like, oh, I'm such an idiot. <laughs> you missed your big chance to meet Aaron. Yeah. Well, I, I got to meet him later on. So that all good. Everything comes around, <laughs> I guess. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I wish we had known each other then. I didn't do very much socializing at that conference. I was working out in the hallway for most of it. I remember I was still at Living Social, and so I was working through the conference, sitting up. Oh, yeah, that's no fun. Yeah, it's okay. I had my own mentor because, uh, like, I was, a, like I said, a scholarship recipient. So they took us around, and, like, I got, they introduced us to people, um, and I yeah. met way more, well, I forgot way more people than I remembered. Um, but, you know, that's that's the thing at conferences, I guess. You just have to kind of roll with it. And usually about the, the fifth time I meet someone, I start remembering their name, you know, on a good day. I apologize to all of my good friends. I remember <laughs> you and all the great times we've had. I just don't remember your name in this exact moment, probably because I'm three whiskeys deep. So <laughs> please wear your name tags at the conferences at all times, including the parties. Keep your name tag on. Yeah. I'll use it to cheat surreptitiously and you'll think I'm a better person. <laughs> Do you still live in, in Portland? I still live in Portland. Actually, just outside. I live in Beaverton, oh. which is a suburb of Portland. Yeah, I know. I was I couchsurfed there, so really? I'm, I'm familiar with that part. Yeah. It's not great if you're trying to be have a high walk score. I have a lot of developer friends who are all about their walk score of where they're going to live. <laughs> they want to be able to walk to the supermarket. And I, I want to drive to the supermarket because I have a family. I shop at Costco exclusively. <laughs> I need to buy, I think, eight gallons of milk a week. I don't want to carry eight gallons of milk back from the grocery store. I've, I've been to that Costco, you know, because the, the guy I was couch surfing with, he said that I, I have to have the true American experience. And he took me to Costco. That's awesome. I love it. It's really like a perfect example of American capitalism, I think, Costco. Yeah, I've never seen like chips bag that big or like um, Gillette razors in like 72 packs of stuff yeah. like that. It's like, who buys this? Like, why? You know, I see it's I actually have been kind of into this plan, though. I put them in the garage. Then I don't have to buy toilet paper this year. <laughs> That's one more thing I don't have to think about. For an entire year. It's amazing, right? They also have a fantastic return policy. They'll take anything back forever. They don't take electronics, but I mean, I've had like a vacuum die on me two and a half years later and you just walk in and you're like, my vacuum is bad. I want a new one. And they, they trade it in. It's amazing. Oh, wow. It's a sad thing that Costco is applauded for paying taxes and not starving their employees and forcing them to eat welfare. Um, but that is the state of the country that I live in. So Yeah. Did you ever think about moving? I was thinking about Slovenia, maybe. No, no, no I'm being serious right now. I actually have, yeah. I have, I have thought about moving to another country. I've always wanted to live in Japan. I speak Japanese. I think that this has come up. Mm. And what about your family? Or my family is less enthused about moving to Japan. Specifically, right. my mother-in-law is uh, <laughs> is now living with us. She's not real excited about moving to a country where she doesn't speak the language or eat the food. Uh, but I would move to Japan if I 
I could, or, or somewhere else, you know, I think lately, I don't want to get too deep into politics, but I am entirely displeased with the way things are going and, um, fleeing just seems like kind of a cop out. Like I would be giving up on something that I actually think can be amazing and an incredible force for good. And it just happens to be broken. This machine we have right now. So we should set about fixing it instead of running for it. But I'm perfectly willing to pull the ripcord and 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 move to uh, Canada or more likely someplace in Europe if things get too terrible. Yeah, let's not discuss politics. Yeah, so, we want to stay away from politics. It's about parallel passion, not parallel politics. Exactly. Um, do you ever go to Voodoo Donuts or is that just the stuff for tourists? No, actually, I've been to Voodoo and Voodoo's good. So Voodoo Donuts is like the the quintessential donut experience in Portland, I guess. People get real excited about Voodoo. What what I know about them is just like they have the craziest name for, for donuts and it oh. all looks so delicious. They're really, they're good donuts, but they're not amazing donuts. If you were to eat a Voodoo donut and then immediately eat a Blue Star donut, you would probably not ever want another Voodoo donut. They're not, okay. again, I'm not Noted. dogging Voodoo. <laughs> I don't want to get a bunch of haters. The hipsters union is going to start calling me from Portland. I'm sorry. Do not forcibly tattoo me with an owl. Yeah, I don't think hipsters would be complaining about uh, you hating on voodoo donuts because that's what hipsters do, right? Well, they might they might complain. Yeah, exactly. Right, voodoo is so over now. <laughs> I'm I'm getting hungry now. So yeah, that's. Let's, let's change topics again. At Rails Israel, you did this presentation on um, Alexa and other um, like voice-activated uh, NSA spy devices. Yes. Um, do you, do you, did you do any voice recognition on, on your own in any of your projects? Or do you always rely on, I don't know, Alexa or Siri or Google Home or whatever? I'm always using some other software that exists already. Gem... Uh, that exists or some some C library or I'm going out to the cloud and using the Amazon voice services or the Google um, natural language APIs mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. But does, it's been fascinating to me. I was into the voice recognition stuff for a long time. I really, it's just finally coming to a point where we can play with it around first playing with computers in, you know, 1994 or whatever. I, I had a computer being able to talk to me at all in that like tinny robot voice was just mind blowing. And it was so funny. <laughs> and we just kept typing things in and making the computer say it to each other. And now we've come to a point where I have a perfectly natural voice. Like it's their friend. Like they'll just, they just casually will walk up to Alexa and ask a question. It, it, when my wife interacts with Alexa, she'll be like, Alexa, turn on the TV. I'm like, okay, you got to say it slowly because there's a trigger word. She's like, it's not working. You do it. That's not, she's not, she's just isn't of the same generation. Yeah, but, but that's the thing also. The, the tools still need to get a bit better. So you could say stuff like that. So they could really be assistants, not just like a bit smarter speakers, right? Yeah. And I think that, I think that we'll get there actually. That kind of stuff is moving very fast. And the reason it's moving very quickly is that now, they're more popular devices and the corpus of data you're working with for your machine learning is so much larger. They're able to do things now like the um, Amazon has a great speech synthesis API. They're storing these things. They anonymize the clips except for the, you know, they've got to give it up to the government. I assume if somebody comes knocking, <laughs> right, but they anonymize it and then they chop it up and they can actually break the sounds up yeah it's it's definitely very interesting so i don't have any of the amazon on, or google devices but i did recently get a home pot just because i i needed as well i wanted a, a speaker 
And I was like, okay, if I'm buying a speaker and I am obviously an Apple fanboy, um, let's let's go all in. Let's buy this stupid um, thing. And um, it's very limited because series very limited. But I I hooked it up with uh, HomeKit. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I haven't used it, but I saw it. Yeah. Right. So HomeKit runs on my Raspberry Pi Zero, this tiny computer, which I still don't know how they can make so cheaply. It's incredible. Yeah. Right. It's like it's like nothing. It how, how does this even work? I you know it it's amazing. Like in the last like twenty years. The Raspberry Pi Zero beats all of the computers that I had at home up until, you know, what, like eight years ago? Maybe yeah. that's an exaggeration, but it's yeah, it's but incredible. It, it's insane. It's incredible. Yeah. And it's like, it's tiny. It's really tiny. And it has Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and everything. So I have uh, my Bluetooth keyboard hooked up to it, um, which is really nice. I don't have to, like, plug anything in. It's just everything's wireless. Um, and I have HomeKit running on it, and I have a couple of extensions, so... Uh, it knows how to turn on my espresso machine, and uh, it it knows how to set my like uh, Slack to do not disturb, uh, which is fun. I could just say to Siri that I'm on a meeting, and it will set it to to do not disturb, or I can say that I'm going running, and it will set uh, like my Slack status to out running, and change an emoji and all that. And it's it's super fun to do, but it's very much still like geek territory. Oh yeah, like no one, no one like quote unquote normal could do this yeah i think that like i think it's moving over so i want to give an example for my parents this my parents are very far disconnected from technology (laughs) they use their alexa they talk to it i got them like a little bluetooth speaker for it so they can sit out on the patio and they'll have it it's primarily music but they have occasionally asked it questions i haven't hooked it up to their their home media center because kind of like Honestly, that took months of training just to get them onto the one control plan where we have a single remote control to rule all devices. So you don't want to mess with their media center plan too casually, but someday I'll hook it up for them. I think that that it bridges the gap for a lot of people in those spaces. But I do see your point that there's definitely more to be done. Yeah, and I, I think like once... I don't know. I, I, we're definitely moving in that direction, and now it's like in, in geek territory, and it's slowly coming down to like enthusiasts. And I think eventually it will be more. Well, hopefully it will be more like spread out. Um, but uh, it is it is very fun to just be able to like say things in in thin air, and just random things happen. And especially when you have someone over, because obviously I have to speak to it in English because it doesn't understand Slovene. And I have someone over and we're speaking in Slovene, obviously. And then I say just out of the blue, like, uh, I don't know, uh, hey, well, I can't say it now because it will start playing. But if if I say it to it, like, start playing music or whatever, and they're like super weirded out, like, why are you speaking in English suddenly? And then the, the speaker sounds playing and they're really freaked out, like, what's happening? This Like, you're living in the future or whatever. Uh, can you not be a geek maybe for a minute that's hilarious i hadn't thought about that experience that's awesome actually yeah yeah well it's awesome for me not like for my friend it's like ah this guy (laughs) so i think the only one that supports foreign languages right now is the google home yeah one i know they're making a big push in japan well siri is pretty good with uh other languages as well because it's uh on on the phones right oh right um so i'm i'm pretty sure homepod is also but slovenian is not supported like even in the in the os itself you cannot have it as a language which is really really dumb 
Um, but I guess we're not a big enough market. But I do sell uh, like iPhones here, and Android is translated in in Slovenian, so I don't know what uh, what the problem is. Wait, so iOS generally does not support the Slovenian language? No, it's in English only. Apple, you're an embarrassment. Yeah, that's shameful. Yeah, it Fix is. that. That's ridiculous. Are you serious? Wow. And so you could buy an Android phone and have it in your native language. Yeah, but you have to use your iPhone in in English. Yeah, I mean, but. I me personally I prefer that because the translations are usually weird. I even like in my youth I used to use Windows in English because the Slovenian translations was were just weird. But for like a regular consumer that's just retarded. Yeah, that's that's too hard to use. I don't think that that anyone would use their their product in that market. They've also done a lot of to like be the the high-end luxury brand phone um branding in the United States. So they're they're winning that fight. I mean, they've sold a whole bunch of these new iPhones, but I think Siri has lagged behind for reasons yeah. that are beyond my understanding. I don't see why because they were there early enough that they should. Yeah, have that's a the huge thing. Amount. They were there the first. Yeah, but then they just stopped there, and ev- like everyone else passed them. Especially, I think Amazon. Um, mm. To everyone's surprise, I guess uh, when when they came out with Alexa, we were all like, "Oh, this is stupid. No one's going to use this." But uh, just, I, I guess, like month by month, it got more and more adopted. And now it's like, it's a de facto, at least in US, from what I hear from like podcasts and, and stuff. I mean, I think that Alexa is on the verge of becoming what we call this thing. If you have a voice assistant in your home, you call it an Alexa. Even yeah. doesn't Google make yeah. an Alexa or doesn't Apple make an Alexa? It's like Kleenex, right? right. Those tissues are called yeah. Kleenex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I do think that Google has... A couple of advantages: one, they're going international, and two, they've got all of the mobile advice or the mobile device. So whenever someone's using their phone in their car with Android Auto and they're talking to their phone, that voice data is going to them. I really feel like this is a race that is won by the company that amasses the most voice input data fastest. Yeah, I I don't know. I think it's it might be because um, I think in English they're pretty much there. Um, it's. I don't think the recognition is the the bottleneck. I think just um, like more complex queries and 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 like smarter speakers, so you can talk to it like a person. So you can say, oh, I don't know, schedule um, a meeting for me and add something to to do, and I don't know, write something to uh, my shopping list, and also start a playlist or something. Because yes. right now it's only yeah. like uh, command, command, command. It's not. It it doesn't really understand, right? Yeah, and I think that that also is a function of the amount of voice data that you get over time. I mean, you you learned English as a second language, right? When you were quite young, yeah. And and learning yeah, English, I, I'm sure that you recognize the absurdity of it. English is a silly language in a lot of ways, and so if I say like, Alexa, take out the trash. Alexa, take the garbage out. Uh, Alexa, garbage comes tomorrow. These are all sayings that where I'm trying to trigger something where my robot removes the garbage from my home. And it could be a different speaker. Um, I know one of them started doing speaker recognition, so they know the difference between me talking to it and my wife talking to it. I think Google does that now. Yeah, I think everyone but Siri does it now. Yeah. And I think even Siri does it on the phone, but not on the HomePod, which is, why? What? Why are you doing this? They must be distinct projects entirely like i don't know i don't know what's happening in their siri thing because there's been a lot of like articles and rumors and stuff but i don't think anyone knows why is it so bad yeah maybe they've been working on something else in secret called super siri that they're going to (laughs) launch 
I'm sure it will be amazing. In any case, I think those things get better with more data. So I think it's now a race to get as much data as possible. Alexa was winning early on because they're obviously the most popular choice in the home. I don't think I know very many people who have Google Homes, but now they've got smaller devices that they're sometimes giving away as part of a promotion. It's like, buy this other Google product and you get a free Google Home device, you know? Mm. So maybe, maybe they catch up. Yeah, I I don't know. We'll see. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's just sad that, um, at least in my opinion, the for a very long time, phone was like, iOS was vastly superior to Android for like pretty long time. And here Siri was vastly superior to anything when it entered the market, but everything else is now way better than it. And it's so weird. It is strange how quickly, I think it's a testament to how quickly things change. I wouldn't expect this from a very, very profitable company with like so much money that they have problems that they have too much money. How much, how much do they have sitting around? How many billions of dollars? Just like more than we can imagine, I guess. Yeah, the Apple cash hoard in in 2018 is 900 billion dollars. Yeah, I, you see, I can't imagine that much money. Like it's just even a million is hard to imagine, but that's like <laughs> maybe look into that. Yeah. Maybe see if you can find anyone to to figure out where the money is to solve that problem. <laughs> anyway, I wanted to ask you about the walking desk because I saw that on one of your old blog posts about walking desk. Um do you still practice that? I don't anymore. So I have a really funny story about the the walking desk. So I, I also have to admit real quickly that I misstated Google Apple's cash hoard. They have about $300 million um, in cash. That's the actual valuation of the company is approaching a trillion dollars. They're on the, on the up and up. So right. keep buying Apple stock. But so I had treadmill I had purchased on uh, Craigslist and partially disassembled. And I just... Uh, took the base of it and hooked it up to the desk, which is a terrible way to build a walking desk. If you're going to build one of these things, don't just use an average uh, treadmill. First of all, you're <laughs> going to have to have an incline all the time, which is fine because the motors, it, it, it's better exercise if you're on an incline, obviously, but the motors are not designed for that kind of high torque, low speed movement. Mm-hmm. So you typically want to be walking like two or three miles an hour. Right. Um, I don't know what that is. If I convert it from freedom units to whatever the rest of the planet uses. Freedom but. units. I completely <laughs> forgot about that. Freedom <laughs> units. Not very fast is the answer. Uh, you walk very slowly. And so you need a motor with a lot of torque because if you're trying to pull this belt with your full weight on it, and I am not a petite man, uh, then you, you got to have a very strong motor. So there are specially designed treadmills for this thing. And it, if I were to do it again, which I, I plan on someday, I, I would do it with one of these specialized uh, uh, treadmills. But so I, I got this treadmill and I set it up actually in the office. I was working at G5 in Bend at the time and I had this little office. Uh, we had our own offices. The developers were all paired up. So we had two people in an office and it was fantastic having a door that you could close and you could focus. And I had my little treadmill desk. <laughs> it was beautiful. And then as with every other software company, they went to the open office plan where they put us, you know, next to the salespeople who were on the phone calls and laughing. And it's just really not a great environment. Please stop doing the open office thing. Yeah, that's. I feel like we have proven that it is terrible. Why why do people keep doing that? That's why I work remotely. Like, seriously, that's number one reason why I work remotely. Me too. Because I can focus. Yeah, if I was going to go work at another company and they gave me a private space where I could focus, I would would be much more inclined to get off of the remote plan. But honestly, right now, I love working remotely 
so much, I don't think I would ever go back. But I ended up not using the treadmill anymore because I was carrying it up the stairs when I did start working remotely at G5. <laughs> I, I was carrying it up the stairs myself uh, and, and twisted wrong and hurt my back very badly. I was bedridden for like a oh, week and I walked funny damn. for about six months. So I don't get yeah, uh, pro tips around the treadmill desk. Don't uh, just buy a random treadmill. Also, don't carry a treadmill up the stairs by yourself, idiot, <laughs> and screw up your back so you can't use the treadmill desk. You would think you wouldn't do that. So you you would you wouldn't think that it had to be like instructed. Yes, no, I don't think that's something anyone. I I am sometimes astonished by my own stupidity. I get very creative <laughs> in, in doing things. You know, I consider myself to be a relatively intelligent man in in some spheres, but sometimes I do astonishing <laughs> things. It's really incredible. So yeah, that was not a good choice <laughs> that I made. Yeah, but I mean, now that you're working remotely, I guess you could set up your exactly. Uh, yeah, I've got my own office, and it's so quiet. And I actually have between me and the children, I I am able to keep the minions at bay with three doors i have a door my office is actually in the back of my closet it's like a fairy tale yes like i have like a doors. secret hidey hole that i can escape into <laughs> and they've got to come in my bedroom door and then into the closet door and then at the back of the closet is a little half door that goes into what used to be a crawl space and is now my finished office space which is actually quite large i mean i've got like 12 foot ceilings in here it's great It was just a crawl space at one point, so it's a little bit weirdly shaped, kind of angular. But it's a perfect office space, and it's a very, very quiet, and I'm rarely disturbed. That's what developers need, yeah. people. And we've proven now that context switching is an expensive cost. Like I saw someone talk about the other day. Um, to, they were talking to a bunch of executives, and they said, the next time you go up and talk to a developer and ask them for something, I want you to imagine that they have to drive an hour to get there and an hour back and then decide if it's still worth it to have a new color for that chart that they gave you earlier <laughs> or if that should actually be a three-hour project considering what you pay them right and people just don't realize that it's so hard to context switch when you're developing you load up all the code into the ram that is your brain and someone comes along and is like hey you want to get coffee and then your ram just auto dumps you're like coffee yeah that sounds good what was i even doing guess i'll go get coffee and try again in an hour i think it's also hard to imagine for for someone who is not a developer maybe i don't know I think the, there's a there's yeah. a lot of comic books i have one uh printed on my door actually uh just about that i i'll try to find it and put it in the show notes um it's it's about this exact thing so this guy is thinking about loops and everything and then someone just comes by like did you get my email and everything is just gone. oh yeah that was the worst one in the open office where it's like you get the slack message or at the time i don't know we're using hip chat or whatever and then someone walks over to you and says did you get my email and my chat message and my text <laughs> about the meeting that's six weeks from now. Very interesting. Uh, I, I, I do think other people nice understand. Remote. Yeah, I just think, I don't think that many people in other areas of a software company understand as well, maybe. I think that like loading up context for a sales call is about studying this individual customer. Mostly it's about like you've developed a relationship with this person over time. You've known that customer for six months, maybe, or maybe it's a cold call, whatever it is, but you've You've done a small amount of research and the rest of it is committed to your long-term memory. But because we're looking at such new areas of the code, I may be working with a piece of code today that I haven't seen ever or in, in six months or a year when I saw it once. So I don't have an opportunity to really commit 
a code base. Yeah. I'm sure there are other other industries where that also applies. You know, I imagine the people in the sciences or medicine have similar problems where they get deep involved in a project. They finally are at a place where they understand it and they're manipulating the parts and someone asks them about something unrelated and they just lose it. But definitely like within a software company, I think it's, I, I at least there's a huge misunderstanding about it. I find people from outside of engineering have a, a much uh, lower level of understanding of the social cues. Like they've got their headphones on. Don't talk to them. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's um, let's end on a more positive note. Please. Um, what would be like three books or three blog posts or articles or, I don't know, YouTube videos or anything that like made a lasting impression or do you, or like change your life or anything like that? Wow. Okay. That's a really good question. I wish that I had been prepared for that question. Ah, have, but that's the catch. Yeah, that is the catch. <laughs> so I have one that's just immediately obvious to me and that is the um it's a video by dan pink where he's talking about motivation and i think it might be the science of motivation is the title of the video yeah so the puzzle of motivation it was based on a ted talk so i prefer the rsa animate version uh, the surprising truth about what motivates us it's from his book drive and uh, you know, whether or not you're a big Dan Pink follower, or you've read his books before, you need to watch this video. It's about 10 minutes long and it talks about motivation and how humans are motivated. Some studies they did that, that talk about, uh, giving people money and seeing if that works or, uh, what actually motivates people. And the, the, the fundamental sum, like I'll give you the TLDR right now. It's just that there are three basic components. You have autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Mm -hmm. So, if I am autonomous within my job, I've given freedom to explore new things. Uh, if I if I have mastery, then I have the opportunity to get good at something. Humans like to get good at things. That's a thing that humans really enjoy. Uh, and purpose, it really, for me at least, it needs to be meaningful. I think that people, even in jobs that we would other cons otherwise consider mundane or maybe someone would pass judgment on and say this is not necessarily purposeful work uh, i think people need to find purpose somehow mm -hmm. but i think those three things have certainly applied to my work life the autonomy mastery and purpose are um, things that i need in every one of my jobs i actually i say to myself i need two out of three of those things mm -hmm. so i try to do kind of a check-in every once in a while uh, especially i have you know, things that happen with me, I'll get uh, sick more often or I'll, I'll just feel unmotivated or I won't want to go to work. I'm taking more vacation than I used to. And I think like, why are you doing all these things? Right. I'm procrastinating. I'm avoiding work. And why is that? It's usually because two out of the three or uh, hopefully not three out of those three things are missing. I've been given a specific project that I must work on that I dislike and I feel like lacks value and I'm not learning anything by doing that project. This is the worst kind of job and then it's time to move on. Yeah. I find. So I, I always try and maintain all three of those. Uh, the book is quite good as well. Drive, I guess in that video. Yeah. There's a similar book, uh, called punished by rewards by Alfie Cohn, which I actually read before I read drive and it goes in all this, um, motivation stuff like intrinsic versus versus extrinsic and how it's very easy to, once you start relying on extrinsic motivators, um, that once you remove those, the intrinsic are gone as well. And you're just not motivated by the stuff that you 
used to be motivated. Yeah. I think the best way to ruin something you love is to get paid to do. Yeah. So that's a really good one. I also have a book read recommendation. I'm going to give two software books. Okay. I want to give okay. Pooter, uh, Practical Object Oriented Design with Ruby. By Sandy. By Sandy Metz, who is fantastic. When I was in Hungary Academy back in the day, Sandy Metz came to speak to us. We would, it was incredible. We were in the DC area and there was a lot of, there were a lot of people who live around there and there were a lot of people in the area for conferences or whatever. And they would stop in to this boot camp thing because it was kind of a new concept that the, the idea that you could teach people who didn't know any software to be software developers in five or six months was an entirely unproven concept. Yeah at the time. And so they wanted to come and check it out. And Sandy came and spoke to us and she was actually at that code retreat, that first code retreat I went to in Floyd, Virginia. That's, Sandy was there. That's awesome. And I got to talk to her and she's like, yeah, I'm writing a book. You should check it out. Let me send you the PDF. That was Pooter. Wow. She sent us the PDF for this book and we were all so busy. I think we were reading a new technical book every week. And then Pooter was gonna was kind of like outside of our curriculum, our responsibilities to learn. So I read the most of it in probably only the first couple of chapters, uh, which was is of course incredibly embarrassing now to admit. I'm sorry, Sandy, uh, but I <laughs> I loved the book. I, I, I can I can it. cut it out in post. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's time for me to be open about that that secret shame of mine that I didn't read all of Sandy Metz's book when she first handed it to me, and I definitely should have. And she handed me a draft copy and was like, "Hey, if you find anything." We should change. Hit me up. Um, and I got to pair with her during the camp, but that's one of my favorite books. I think it's just, it's a really good way of breaking down object-oriented design. And I know how hard it was for me to pick up when I was new to software. Being able to design object-oriented systems quickly is a very specific skill, and it takes time to develop. So if you, if you learn to do that well, uh, you will succeed at least when you're working with OO, you know, inside or outside of Ruby. If you're off in functional land, it will certainly be less valuable. Yeah, but Sandy, Sandy is a master of breaking down like big issues to to smaller ones and and like it's small explainable facts. Like her, she's incredible. She's incredible. Like I, I always enjoy her like presentations and stuff. It's just like. It's so good. It it makes perfect sense. It's like how did I never think of this like before? Because it's so once she tells it, it's like of course that's the way it is. But like before that, I would never look at it. Like. And that's where all of the most brilliant insights come from. It's just this like simplicity. I think that's part of why I wanted to be a developer advocate in the beginning is that I want to I want to be someone who's able to explain things that succinctly, that it seems obvious, you know? I think that, that sometimes I, I achieve that and sometimes I don't. <laughs> but I, I have I certainly have a lot to learn from people like Sandy because she's very, very good at that thing. It's really impressive to watch. You should go on online and check out Sandy's talks. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, brave listeners, they, there's some really good content out there. On Confreaks, all of her talks, I think, are up there. Um, oh, so that was the one technical book. And the other one, if you are a Rubyist, Ruby Under a Microscope is a fantastic book. You need to read Ruby under a microscope and get an idea about how Ruby works internally. It will inform the way you work with Ruby in ways that uh, you probably don't understand right now. Uh, it's really, really a good book. Uh, Pat Shaughnessy wrote that book, and it's, uh, it's I think, one of my favorite, uh, favorite software books in general. Uh, Ruby under a Microsoft. Yeah, yeah, I know. I have it here on my on my shelf. Um, yeah, I've got it sitting right next to me up here too. I love that book. Yeah, um, like you didn't read the whole Pooter. I didn't read the whole Ruby under a microscope. 
Um, yeah, I actually, I, re- I did read it all, but I also go back to it. I refer to it more than I would think, but I know that there are excerpts in there about the method lookup or about compilation steps and how mm. tokenization happens in Ruby and things like that. And I use it as reference material all the time. Cool. Well, uh, great. Thanks for, for your um, recommendation and thanks for your time and, and for, for the whole chat. I really enjoyed this. It was my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we finally got it to happen. I I, um, I know that I have a tendency to ramble, but it's very generous of you to let me on your show to talk some words at people. Well, that, that's why I love talking to you, that I don't have to talk this mu- as much. You, <laughs> you, you, you do the work. <laughs> well, well, we'll do that again in Slovenia sometime soon, I hope. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Okay, um, thanks again, Jonan. You're very welcome. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right, this was my interview with Jonan. Parallel Passion is a new podcast, so please share it with your friends and followings. One way to do so is to rate, review, favorite, follow, like and subscribe or whatever it is you do in your podcast app of choice. But please do something, anything, because it really helps. If you enjoyed this show and want me to keep at it, you can also support it via Patreon. To do so, visit patreon.com slash That's patreon.com slash P-A-R-P-A-S-P-O-D. Or just open up the show notes and follow the Patreon link there. Every euro or dollar counts. Thanks. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are at PowerPassPod on all of them. You can retweet, share, like, and submit your feedback there. All the links from this episode are in the show notes and on our website, parallelpassion.com six. Thank you, and have a passionate day.